and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Serena Fawkes, a senior associate in the employment team. With me today is Kate Brilly, one of the partners in the team. Thanks, Serena. You're recently back from maternity leave, so great to have you back. Thank you. So in this podcast, um, what Serena and I are going to talk about are some tricky issues that come up when employees dismiss an employee for misconduct or poor performance. And in particular, we're going to look at three recent cases. So the first is the Supreme Court's decision in Duty versus Royal Mail. This case dealt with whether a tribunal should look beyond the reason given by the decision maker for the dismissal to ascertain whether there was a different reason behind the dismissal. The second two cases are the EAT decision of Sunshine Hotel versus Goddard and the Court of Appeal decision in Satar versus Citibank. And these two cases concern disciplinary processes that led to dismissals for misconduct. In particular, the case is focused on what an investigation an employer should carry out before making a decision to dismiss. So a key point that employers need to consider right at the outset of the process. Now, as a reminder, if an employee with at least two years of service is dismissed, then they can bring a claim for unfair dismissal. To avoid such a claim, an employer needs to have both a fair reason for dismissal and follow a fair process before dismissing that employee. There are also some circumstances where a dismissal will be automatically unfair and an employee does not need two years of service to bring a claim. This includes discrimination, whistleblowing and dismissals for trade union activities. Looking at the financial impact of unfair dismissal claims... At present, the compensation for unfair dismissal claims is a basic award calculated on length of service and age and capped currently at £15,750. There's also a compensatory award for loss of earnings, which is currently capped at up to £86,444 or a year's pay if that is lower. These figures apply to dismissals before April 2020. In April, it's likely that the figures will go up slightly as they do every year. In contrast, compensation for whistleblowing and discrimination claims are unlimited and potentially very expensive. In addition to the compensation payable, it's also costly for employers to defend unfair dismissal claims, not only in terms of legal fees and management time, but also the risk of reputational damage. The process to be followed by an employer depends on the reason for the dismissal. Misconduct dismissals will require disciplinary processes to take place before the dismissal. Most employers have written disciplinary procedures, which are expressed to be non-contractual. However, tribunals will still expect employers to be aware of ACAS's code on disciplinaries. While this code is not legally binding, tribunals can and will take any failure to follow the code into account. Some employers also have particular disciplinary rules arising from collective bargaining agreements. In the two cases that we will discuss about disciplinary investigations, neither had a contractual disciplinary process. So in those cases, as well as the employer's non-contractual procedures, the judges looked more generally at the ACAS code and the law around unfair dismissal procedures. Dismissing an employee can be a difficult process for an employer to go through. It's always best to take advice early on if you're considering invoking a disciplinary procedure. So potential pitfalls can be avoided and the risks of litigation minimised. Turning to the first of our cases, we'll look at duty in the Royal Mail. The essential point in this case was whether a tribunal could and should only look at the mindset of the person or persons who made the decision to dismiss, 
or whether the background to that dismissal can be taken into account. So a fairly critical point. The case reached the Supreme Court in 2019. As in the way with cases that are important, which have worked their way through the courts, we have looked at this case in the decision in the Court of Appeal in one of our earlier podcasts. However, the Supreme Court did not agree with the Court of Appeal, so the route map has changed again. Just by way of recap, in the duty case, uh, the employee was dismissed for poor performance during her probation period. Whilst she didn't have enough service to bring an unfair dismissal claim, she was able to bring a claim that she had been automatically unfairly dismissed as a result of making a protected, or indeed several protected, disclosures. The lower courts had found that Miss Duty had made protected disclosures to her line manager soon after starting her job. As a result of that, her line manager subjected her to a serious grilling in a meeting of no less than four hours. During the course of that meeting, he persuaded her to retract her allegations, which were the protected disclosures. Having done so, the line manager then put Miss Duty through an inappropriately difficult performance review process, in which quite clearly she was set up to fail. As a result, Miss Duty went on an extended period of sick leave and it was during that sick leave period that the possible issue of her dismissal arose. The issue that brought the case all the way to the Supreme Court was that the decision to dismiss, which was made on the basis of poor performance, was made by an independent senior employee who was not made aware of Miss Duty's whistleblowing but simply based her, i.e. the decision-maker's decision, in good faith on the evidence of poor performance. Therefore, the key question was if a dismissing officer relies in good faith on a manufactured-for-reason for dismissal, should the tribunal and could the tribunal look beyond that false reason? The decision of the Supreme Court was that in searching for the reason for dismissal, normally one only looks at the reason given by the decision-maker, so this was an unusual case. However, the court said that where the decision-maker is blind to the real reason for dismissal, which has been hidden behind a fabricated reason, and in this case the fabricated reason was the poor performance uh, allegation by the line manager then this court said that it is the court's duty to penetrate through the invention, i.e. to look behind that false reason. What does this mean in practice? It means that the employment tribunals will focus far more heavily on the whole decision-making process. Tribunals will look at whether the information relied upon by a decision-maker has been manipulated in any way or is being used as a front to cover up the real reason for dismissal. Duty was a, an unusual case because, due to her illness, Miss Duty was unable to take part in a coherent way in the dismissal procedure. The consequence of that was that she wasn't able to bring the whistleblowing to the decision-maker's attention and therefore it was effectively hidden. Now that, uh, in most cases, obviously the employee will participate in the process and will therefore be able to uh, inform the decision-maker of the background to it. In terms of the practical takeaways of this case, the, the most important one is that employers should ensure that decision-makers 
are really alive to this issue and they do properly look into the factual background before making their decision to dismiss. They must, in their minds, reach the genuine reason for dismissal rather than simply relying on evidence that presented by their managers or others who may, of course, as the line manager did in this case, have some ulterior motive behind the fabrication of the reason. The second key point relates to whistleblowing policies and the importance of having robust policies and training managers as to how to use them. Had the line manager in this case really understood the consequences um, of his actions and treating Miss Duty less favourably as a result of having made a uh, protected disclosure, then the outcome may have been rather different. So turning to the process for running a disciplinary investigation, we're going to look at the recent Sunshine Hotel and Goddard EAT case. Employers often find disciplinary processes confusing and they wonder if they need to run a separate formal investigation process before embarking on a disciplinary process. The Sunshine Hotel and Goddard case dealt with this point. It confirmed that employers are not legally required to hold a two-stage process and an initial investigation does not necessarily need to be completed before a disciplinary hearing begins. This, of course, assumes that there is no collective agreement or contractual disciplinary procedure that does require an initial investigation. As the EAT pointed out, the ACAS code requires employers to carry out necessary investigations of potential disciplinary matters without unreasonable delay to establish the facts of the case. This means that the employee needs to act reasonably in investigating the allegations against the employee before starting a disciplinary procedure. In this case, the tribunal found that the employer had not followed a fair dismissal process because it invited Mr Goddard to what was described to him as an investigation meeting, which turned out to be the actual disciplinary hearing. This was a surprise to the employee who was not able to prepare his case adequately. The investigation process before and after that disciplinary hearing was also inadequate. This case reiterates the relative flexibility that employers have in the way that they conduct disciplinary procedures. They are not required to carry out a two-stage process if this isn't felt necessary in the particular case. But we stress that the decision in this case was very fact-specific. However, employers do need to make sure that employees are aware of which stage of the disciplinary procedure they are facing. It must always be clear in advance if an employee is being asked to attend a disciplinary hearing. Although the Sunshine case says that you don't need to have an initial investigation, in most cases, an initial investigation will be necessary to gather all the relevant documentations and information that will be used to formulate the disciplinary allegations against the employee. Usually, it's sensible to involve the employee at this initial stage to see if there's an innocent explanation that then wouldn't require a disciplinary procedure being invoked. However, sometimes this will not be appropriate and the employee will not be involved at this initial stage and they will only become aware of the allegations when they receive an invitation to a disciplinary hearing. In those cases, it's paramount to ensure that the employee is fully aware of the case against them so they are prepared to give their account at the hearing. Just as a reminder, when you do get to the disciplinary hearing stage, the employee, of course, has a right to bring a companion, being a work colleague or a trade union official, to that disciplinary hearing if they so choose. Finally, we'll turn to the Court of Appeal case of Satire and Citibank NA. In this case, not only one, but two initial investigations were carried out before the disciplinary charges were presented to the claimant. The case involved a summary dismissal for gross misconduct of a very senior employee of Citibank who had no less than 40 years' service. 
The bank became aware of concerning transactions carried out by Mr Satar in relation to a charity enterprise that he ran. He was suspected of misusing the bank's systems and inappropriately using the services of more junior colleagues. He was involved in two initial investigations, having meetings with the investigators before he was suspended. Shortly before his disciplinary hearing, Mr Satar made Citibank aware that he was disabled. He asserted his disability could impact on his memory and concentration and thereby affect his defence of the disciplinary allegations. Citibank, as a result, made adjustments to the disciplinary process. Meetings were postponed, the allegations were narrowed and... In relation to the disciplinary stage and the appeal stage of the disciplinary process, Mr Satar dealt with that through written representations. The appeal process was thorough and permitted him to raise new evidence before it ultimately confirmed his dismissal. Notwithstanding all of these processes, Mr Satar subsequently brought claims of unfair dismissal and disability discrimination against Citibank. So, Kate, this was seen to be a thorough investigation process with reasonable adjustments made in light of the employee's disability and a thorough appeal. That seems hard to criticise. It may be thought that that process was hard to criticise, I agree, Serena. But nonetheless, Mr Satar did bring his claims and he alleged that the decision to take disciplinary action had been taken before the completion of a proper investigation. He also alleged that reasonable adjustments were not made to the disciplinary procedure. The Court of Appeal decision was that continuing investigation after making a decision to discipline an employee was not a flaw in the process and didn't make the decision unreasonable. This was so provided that the employee had a proper opportunity to consider any new material, which they concluded Mr Satar did. What did the Court find on the fairness of the investigation process? The Court of Appeal reiterated that the test for whether an employee has carried out a reasonable investigation should look at the full investigatory process right up to the decision to dismiss. Mr Satar was given ample opportunity to present his version of events, both to the different investigators and to the person hearing his disciplinary, and that was done both in person and later in writing. Reasonable adjustments were also made. The court also noted that any issues in the disciplinary procedure can be addressed during the appeal process, especially if fresh evidence from the employee is permitted. Even though the dismissal was ultimately upheld and Mr Satar's appeal rejected, there are some practical takeaways in this case and others like it. First of all, be clear to employees about the precise nature of the disciplinary charges they are facing. For example, if the employee is alleged to have breached certain internal rules or procedures, don't just send a copy of the relevant documents. Instead, in your letter setting out the disciplinary charges, you should explain which rules and procedures may have been breached and how they have been breached. You may think that is obvious on the facts of the case, but it is important to be clear to the employee. It's also clear you can continue investigations after the disciplinary process has commenced and that won't necessarily be particularly unusual. Further charges can be added to the list of disciplinary allegations if new information arises during the process. But again, these must be clearly identified to the employee and the employee must have a full opportunity to address them. It's important also to bear in mind that the process mustn't be seen as simply a witch hunt to dismiss the employee. 
Also, do bear in mind that if an employee has a disability that may impact on their defence of disciplinary allegations, then the employer should consider making reasonable adjustments in the process. This may involve some occupational health advice. It may involve giving the employee extra time in order to address particular allegations. Finally, if there is any concern about the fairness of the disciplinary process, a thorough appeal can go a long way to remedy any previous shortcomings in the process and also possibly to reduce the compensation payable if a successful claim cannot be entirely avoided. So as we've illustrated in this podcast, dismissing employees can and does give rise to some tricky issues. We in our employment team do regularly advise employees how to navigate their way through the disciplinary process And as Serena has said, taking advice early is a key recommendation from us because it really does help to avoid the risk of successful claims. Thanks, Kate, and thank you to all our listeners. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website www.shlegal.com. 